podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. 1980s now. Hello, everyone. Hey, it's Will. Uh, We're off this week, the first week of October 2021, but we're already excited for Halloween and all the spookiness that it brings. So in lieu of a new episode this week, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. But this week, enjoy that time that Ray and I spoke on a prior episode about urban legends in 1980s films. Today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about urgent urban legends, rather, of 1980s films. So, you know, today, you know, we hear a lot about fake news, and some of it really is fake news. And other times, people just call things fake news when they don't like the news because it's bad news to them. But this is not a new thing. Spreading it around on Facebook and Twitter, that's new. In the old days, you had to find it out from a friend who said, did you hear this about, uh, you know, such and such? And it would spread like wildfire. Or it wouldn't. Because uh, <laughs> I tried to start some rumors in my neighborhood. They didn't go very far at all. Hmm. So anyway, but there's a number of these that were in that, that urban legends that we had heard when we were kids and still persist to this day in connection with 1980s films. So I'm going to run these by you, Ray, and I'm going to uh, you know, figure out, you're familiar with most of these, I think. Toss them out. See what, you, what your understanding is today as to whether, you know, the truth, uh, whether they're true or false, uh, and you let me know your thoughts about that. I, I absolutely love this kind of stuff. So this should be good. And so, as, you know, and folks, this is what we're talking about. This is one that doesn't count. You remember that story about the Wizard of Oz, where apparently a munchkin committed suicide and hung himself during the filming and a tree in the back. And nobody mm-hmm. knew this until the film came out. And like 50 years later in the 80s or whenever it was, we discovered it. And now we knew. Maybe because yeah. it was on tape, videotape for the first time. Well, that turns out to be false. That wasn't actually a person. It was actually a, a bird that was there that uh, the Los Angeles Zoo had lent the production and they had it on a tree or something like that. That's what they want you to yeah. believe. Well, oh, okay. Oh, actually, no, I do have a note here. It says that the urban legend with Wizard of Oz started when it was released on VHS in the 1980s. So there you go. Look at that. That even started in the 1980s. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. Here's the first one. Everybody's heard this one, right? The three men and a babies. Baby ghost. Yeah. Yeah. So Three Men and a Baby came out in 1987. And here's the urban legend. After the movie was released on VHS, a legend emerged about the, about the movie. About an hour into the film, Ted Danson's character is uh, walking through his uh, home with his mother, the actress who plays his mother, uh, with, with his new baby girl, you know, that he has now taken responsibility for with his uh, two roommates. And in the background, you see a mysterious figure behind the curtains of one of the windows. The legend is, the urban legend is that that figure was actually the ghost of a boy who used to live in the house where they filmed the movie, and he was a ghost there haunting the the home because earlier he had committed suicide, which is also the reason the the house was vacant and available for them to use as a filming location. What do you think? True or false? Well, this one's false. There wasn't a ghost? No, I wish there was, and I wish he was haunting this movie for being bad. Oh, no, I like that movie. But I think that's one of the, the people on the crew's kid or something mm. who actually got into a shot. So it turns out the mysterious figure behind the curtain is actually a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson himself, <laughs> dressed in a top hat and, and tails. And it was a, a prop. If you remember, he plays an actor in the movie. 
Um, it's a prop. I don't know if it's a connection with one of his characters, his, his character, the actor played, but it's from a storyline that actually was scrapped from the movie. So it makes no sense to us that he was there. We wouldn't otherwise know it. But part of the reason it seems that this rumor even persisted after the, you know, it came out on tape was, as you know, the quality, you own a lot of the VHS tapes, the quality is not the same resolution as it, things are today. So it was easy. To, it was hard to make out what it was. Yeah. If you, if you watch it today on HD, you could tell it's Ted Danson. No problem. A side note, this idea that the house was available because a, a kid committed suicide there. The house is actually not a real house. It was a set uh, or a house built on a set uh, on a soundstage in Toronto. Yeah, there's nothing haunted in Toronto. <laughs> okay, here's, number, here's another one for you. Are you familiar with the film named Atuk? Oh, Atuk. Yes, I am familiar with this one. <laughs> this one. This one's pretty scary. So the urban legend is that, uh, so in 1971, uh, legendary director uh, Norman Jewison purchased the rights to adapt a book from the 60s called The Incomparable Atuk, which is a satirical novel by an author named Mordecai Rickler. And the, the urban legend is that anybody who was cast to star in the film had an untimely death. Yeah. Anytime you make a movie, well, you try to make a movie about an Eskimo in the city, <laughs> bad things are going to happen. Yeah, what it is. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the film was supposed to be this sort of fish out of water thing uh, with yeah. a, a native Canadian uh, is the, the book, but you're right. They changed it to an Alaskan uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Inuit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe it starts with, um, with Belushi. Yeah. And in, in 19, so they were, they were about to shoot it. Uh, he first, uh, John Belushi first read the role of a took beginning in 82. He immediately expressed interest in the project and was set to play the character. And just a few months later in March, uh, he was found dead at the Chateau Marmont in uh, Hollywood. And then I think John Candy's next. Well, um, hmm. As far as who was actually cast, I don't know. The next stop, as far as I know, is that they actually, the only time they ever began production on this film was in 1988, in February, when they had cast Sam Kinison. Ah, I forgot Sam. Yeah. And Yeah, Sam's next. They, they, they only worked on production for eight days, when uh, they, Sam Kinison was at odds with the movie studio saying that he was promised creative control. And so they were butting heads on this with uh, the studio trying to accommodate Kinison, but Kinison getting more difficult and ultimately them severing their relationship with United Artists filing a lawsuit against, against Kinison saying that he was intentionally trying to sabotage the film. Of course, he died tragically also in 1992 in a car accident. He was only mm -hmm. 38 years old at the time. Isn't yeah. That's shocking. Jeez. Hit by a drunk driver, I do believe. Yeah. We're outliving yeah. our, you know, heroes here. Yeah. That's that's not good. And then John Candy's next. He died in 1994. And then you get uh, Farley. That's right. Chris Farley yeah. also was attached to the film at one point, and he passed away again, tragically, unfortunately, in 1997. The film today, to date, has never been made. No one's trying to make this movie anymore. <laughs> no one else will even audition for it at this point. Yeah. I, I read, especially if, if mm -hmm. especially if you're a fat guy in Hollywood, Ooh. you're not going anywhere near this thing. Yeah, I read some you know some version of this this uh, urban legend that said that it was anybody who read the script or was in the room with someone who read the script, <laughs> and they used this to pull in Phil Hartman, who said that he was uh, he was with Chris Farley or when he read the script or something like that. Yeah, I've heard the rumors on that one too, but I think that's all that one is, is rumors. Yeah, you can't really, I guess I can't really ask you true or false, is it really a curse? Is it really cursed? But man, that movie's got some death attached to it. Yeah, I wonder if anybody would be, uh, will be willing to be cast in it at this point. I would. You would, I'll take, right. my, I'll take my chances. Hollywood, you heard it. Norman Jewison, yeah. 
I don't know if yeah. he's still around or making movies. I should know that, sir. I apologize. But I've been working on getting fat so I can look like these guys. And <laughs> I thought you could see I've been working on dying tragically. Okay. Oh, uh, no, no. All right, fat, uh, the movie. Better, yes. <laughs> Once I get the movie part, that'll take care of that. <laughs> yes, that'll take care of that. Right. Okay. Here, urban legend number three. Jessica Rabbit goes basic instinct in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hmm. So if you remember this... Um, there's a there's a scene where she and uh, the police officer character, the detective. Oh boy, Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins yes. plays uh, the detective, and um, they're in the car together, that cartoon car. And like right before they get to the cartoon town, mm-hmm. you would never believe I watched this movie just a couple months ago. Right before they get into an accident, and the car, they sends them flying out of the car. Jessica Rabbit spins around a couple times, and there is the urban legend is there's a shot where she's facing forward. She's all Sharon stoning it. With all of her, uh, you know, with her- With her rabbit's fur hanging out. Oh, man. Yes. Yes. So, true or false? I'm going to go false on that one. You're right. Yes. She is thrown from the car. Her legs do open and reveal more than she's, you know, would be comfortable probably sharing. Uh, but it's it's not a uh, full-on basic instinct. Um, actually, what you see is probably would be her undergarments. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, this is- there's probably a worse scene that was cut from the film, a more scandalous one, which had the cigar smoking baby. If you remember, he's uh, he has a woman taking care of him who's very attractive. At one point, they cut out this part where he's he's seen peeking and poking under her skirt. So, okay, I'm curious if you heard of this next one or not because you have a wide uh, knowledge uh, of of different films from the 1980s. Yeah, I cast I cast a wide net. Yeah on things that don't matter mm. in real life. Mm. So let's see how I do it okay. this way. And this one happens to be in a genre that's uh, along the lines of horror. Okay. This urban legend is that the film Guinea Pig 2 called Flower of Flesh and Blood is actually a snuff film. So in 1985, Guinea Pig mm. 2, Flower of Flesh and Blood, which shows a modern day samurai methodically torture, kill and dismember a young woman in a secret lair is real. That's the urban legend. In fact... In 1991, after Charlie Sheen received a copy of this film, he was so convinced that he was seeing actual footage of a murder, he reported it to the FBI, who confiscated his copy of the movie and launched, launched a full inquiry into it. Hmm. So, was Guinea Pig 2, Flower of Flesh and Blood, an actual snuff film? I'm going to go with no, because Charlie was probably on a lot of drugs <laughs> at the time. <laughs> It's actually a cartoon even. He's turning in. It, he he might not have been watching that. Giving him a copy of Akira. They blew up Japan. Yeah, he's just giving him a copy. He has him a copy of like, I don't know, Ferris Bueller. This kid really wasn't in school. He needs a <laughs> truancy officer. Yeah. Well, you're right. Yes, it is. it wasn't true. This is sort of along the lines of Cannibal Holocaust. There's a similar urban legend in connection with that. Yeah. And even Faces of Death, if you remember that, it turns out the director admitted ultimately he faked most of those things. There's only, I think, one right. thing that's real. Um, this, this film was actually written and directed by Hideshi Hino, hope I'm getting that right, based on his own manga comics. Uh, and it was only after the investigators that were looking into this at Charlie Sheen's prompting spoke with the individuals involved in the film and, and viewed some behind-the-scenes footage revealing how they, the gory special effects were made that they dropped the investigation. <laughs> Imagine Charlie's surprise when they called him. Hey, Charlie, like, I just spoke to the actor. Yeah that you think was murdered, you're, you're an idiot, dude. <laughs> you're an actor. And uh, <laughs> I mean, how did you fall for this? Here's a bonus urban legend for you, that a copy of the film was found in the home of a man named uh, Sutomo Miyazaki, 
a serial killer who was known as the otaku murderer in Japan, who was behind the mm. kidnapping and murder of four young girls between 1988 and 1989. Figures. So true or false? You think it's true? They did find a copy of this uh, film. Actually, I, that sounds true to me. It is true. After his arrest in 1989, they found a copy of Guinea Pig 2 in his home. That does sound true. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to get into what he did to these poor young girls. Yeah. They were very young and it's really terrible, but it does seem like he was, you know, imitating what he had seen in this film that, you know, fooled Charlie Sheen. On a side note, yeah. um, Faces of Death. Yeah. Is there a person alive who doesn't know the monkey scene? Yeah, I don't know. Because like that's, uh, I, I guess it, it's a weird way to say it, but that's like the highlight of Yeah, Faces that's of right. Death. When you're a kid, that's the one that gets talked about the most. That's, that's the one that you're talking about at school the second yes. you see it. And that's one of the ones that was faked, apparently. Yeah, obviously, faked, but yeah. Well, at the time, at the time we fell yeah, for no it. kidding, yeah. Oh my God, yes, that was horrible. Watch that movie. Then it quickly became with your friends. There's a sequel? Let's get the sequel out of the rental <laughs> store. We'll get yeah. all of them, all seven of them, or wherever they were. All right, so hey, for this next urban legend, which I'm not gonna really going to be able to pose to you, true or false, but I wanted to play you a clip from uh, a 1989 uh, featurette that was released in connection with Back to the Future Part 2. The hoverboard is a board that hovers on magnetic energy, and it works just like a skateboard, except it doesn't have any wheels, and you don't have to have any pavement to hover on. And they've been around for years, it's just that parents groups have not let the toy manufacturers make them and we got our hands on some and we put them in the movie so i didn't recall this but apparently in 1989 in connection with the the film back to the future part two which features marty mcfly using a hoverboard in lieu of a skateboard when he goes to the future children you know kids teenagers etc us were led to believe by mr robert zemeckis who's the on that clip there and uh, Michael J. Fox, that hoverboards were real, including this uh, from this documentary, and that the only reason we weren't able to get them was because they were feared, the parents feared their children getting hurt. Do you remember hearing that? Actually, I do. Yep. And there's also a great episode of the Goldbergs on this topic. Is that right? Yeah, it's awesome. So, uh, yeah, this is fake. He's, he's, a, he's the original troller right there. Yeah. Yeah, you, so, you know, Tony Hawk tried to do the same thing to us a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, since we've talked about this uh, several months ago now, when we talked about tech we were promised in the future and whether uh, we got it or not, we talked about how there are some real hoverboards now that just you can't afford them. They're like, you know, $14,000 and you $10,000 worth of a track and your whatever to fly. But yes, of course, this is fake. And Robert Zemeckis later admitted that all the flying sequences were faked with using, <laughs> uh, you know, practical and computer special effects. Yeah, I don't, maybe I was too old to have been convinced that they were real at the time. Yeah, at the, at the time it came out, though, I don't remember hearing any of this stuff. This was after the fact that I heard him say all this yeah. stuff. So I definitely would have wanted a hoverboard. But my mom yeah. probably wouldn't have let me get one. No, I'd have had to ride my buddies. Yeah, and then you would have been holding onto the back of the car. Well, yeah, he'd have probably been driving and be like, yeah. well, if you're going to ride my hoverboard, you got to hold on to the yeah. back of the car. Okay, hey, uh, here's another urban legend connected to a 1980s film. This is one is connected to 1980s The Shining. Ooh. And the urban legend is that The Shining is actually Stanley Kubrick's confession that he faked the moon landing. <laughs> you know what? I would love to say that's real. Yeah. But I'm going to have to go with false. You know, you're right. So I, you know, I had heard these stories before about uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, having been responsible for faking the moon landing. The idea being that uh, after he, he filmed uh, A Space Odyssey in 1968, the government approached, or this is how the story goes, the government approached him 
because they, they weren't able to achieve, uh, you know, their mission of landing a man on the moon. And so they asked him based on his expertise and knowledge of space, again, based on a fake film, uh, to fake their actual arrival on the moon. I had heard that part of it. What I had never heard was this even more bizarre thing was that hidden in The Shining are his are clues where he's admitting to having done that. We could do a whole episode on the things that people believe about <laughs> yeah. The Shining. Here's, here's the weird part about this one. There's a good probability or possibility yep. that the moon landing is fake. <laughs> okay, I'm listening. <laughs> okay, because if you look at the technology of the time- I- I, I, I know what you're going to say, man. I, man, yeah. it's tough to believe that they could put that thing on the moon. Uh, yeah. And when you think about it, Hollywood was with, uh, I've seen the footage. Yeah. But it's tough because you're looking at it like, how do you keep all these people from telling the truth for yeah. so long? Right. Uh, I hear you, man. There's Look, I've said this before on the show. And I say this to you privately. There's a number of things we have today. And I would say I'm generally not a conspiracy theorist or believe these kinds of things, but there's a number of technology we have today. And I'm like, how can we really, how does this really work? Like cell phones. Roswell. Like, yeah. Roswell. Right. We talked to a Jerry, uh, Jerry Clark about this. Yeah. I, I, I'm torn on the moon landing. I really am. Cause how come nobody else can do it but us? Well, that's not true. Other countries have been there. And no, I mean like on the surface. No, they've been there. Yeah, they've been there. How come I didn't see nothing on the news about it? Well- Oh, because yeah. I'm an American. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't know what's going on in other countries. I don't know what's going well, on. Well, in fact, you may not even realize this. And again, I only know this from researching whether, you know, to the- Well, this is what happened. I came across this urban legend. Then I read into, you know, what the, the thing about The Shining is. And then I thought, how do, like you're saying, how do we know we went to the moon? <laughs> you know? <laughs> because uh, I saw someone just conclude- you know, there's five decades of evidence that prove we la- we landed on the moon on uh, July 20th, 1969. I'm like, really? What's the, e-? okay. So then I went down this rabbit hole and there is a lot of mm-hmm. evidence. But I, one of the things I learned was I hadn't realized that we had gone to the moon six times uh, between 69 and 72, landing 12 men on the moon. And what they explained was they say is that uh, after the, after the first time, people really start losing interest that they wouldn't even show it on TV. Like they would have one guy tells a story. I read that I think it was by the second or third landing they were showing it. And he was like really excited to see it. Cause he's a kid. And then they cut back to soap operas, you know, before they could <laughs> see anything important. He was watching general hospital. Like I just have a tough time with the technology that they had back then that oh. they could get a spaceship to the moon. It just, yeah. It just doesn't seem possible. And back and communicate with them. And yeah, yeah. Sounds I mean, crazy. seriously, yeah. How are they communicating? Yeah. It's radio waves, man. I know I can't, my I daughter mean, and I at, can't get a walkie talkie to work in our house. At, at that time, kids still thought two cans and a string yeah. could be used to talk to each other. Yeah. I, I, look, again, the simplest answer is often the explanation. I agree with you, man. I, I believe it happened, but it, I think it's hard to wrap your head around it. Yes. Yeah. And, but, but I also think that people back then just had this tough guy thing where they're like, yeah, put me in it, fire the rockets and put me on the moon. That's true. Yes. Chuck Yeager comes to mind. It's just a different mentality. So uh, among the secrets that are hidden in The Shining that lets us know that Stanley Kubrick was involved in this includes the fact that uh, Danny Torrance, uh, you know, the uh, child actor played by, or the child character rather played by child actor Danny Lloyd, is seen wearing a knitted sweater that has the Apollo 11 rocket on the front of it. That's one clue, so now we know. There's also, remember that iconic carpet that's throughout the Overlook Hotel? Mm -hmm. It's been featured in other films and other references. 
to it in other pop culture that it resembles an aerial photograph of the launch pad of Apollo 11. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And finally, when Jack Torrance goes crazy at the end and is screaming about all the responsibilities put on his shoulders and uh, that he signed a contract to keep the secrets of the hotel, that's really Stanley Kubrick saying how his, about talking about his relationship with the government and the moon landing having been faked. That's all a pretty big stretch. Yeah, there's... There's a fascinating documentary. Again, we could do a whole episode on it called Room 237, which examines all the different interpretations of The Shining and all the theories that folks have as to the secret messages that Kubrick put in there. And the moon landing is only like one of them. It's like a fraction of it. Hmm. There's all these other things. I thought it was interesting that they they, they said they hired Stanley Kubrick to fake, the theory is, you know, they hired him to fake the moon landing because of his knowledge and experience and expertise, which is demonstrated in space, uh, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. But when he features people walking on the moon in the movie, they're just walking like normally. Well, There's yeah. no gravity <laughs> issues. They're not. So, you know, I don't know that he's the, the greatest expert. That's him throwing people off the trail. Yeah. Okay. Hey, the, the last 80s film that has some urban legends connected to it, there's actually two. So here's the first uh, urban legend, and these are in connection with the 1982 film, Poltergeist. Sweet. Poltergeist is regarded by many as maybe maybe the most famous or well-known cursed films of all times mm-hmm. because the, the film came out in 1982. Of course, it's about a, a suburban family who moves out to this uh, development who is suddenly, you know, shortly after moving in, terrorized by, by uh, poltergeists, by a supernatural presence throughout the film. In the final sort of, or one of the climactic scenes towards the end, the mother, played by Joe Beth Williams, is, winds up being in, uh, in a pool that's been just dug out. So it's still surrounded by, you know, mud. The muddy walls start sort of collapsing in on her and out from these, uh, from this, you know, dirt are, are she's surrounded by skeletons. Uh, and ultimately yep. the, you know, the big uh, sort of uh, reveal at the end of the film is that they built this community on top of a former graveyard and they just removed the headstones, not the bodies. It's a goddamn Indian graveyard. <laughs> Yeah, it was like, you moved the headstones, but not the bodies. <laughs> Whatever. And um, the, the urban legend is that the film crew used real skeletons that they had to you know, retrieve from graves. They had to desecrate themselves to get because they had a few dozen skeletons. And further goes on that as a result of this, a curse fell on the cast, which led to the tragic deaths of a number of the different actors involved in the, you know, in the, in the different films, including the young girl, Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, who gets captured by the poltergeist in the film. She she actually died during the making of Poltergeist 3. Mm-hmm. And Dominique Dunn, who played uh, her older sister, who was murdered by a, a, a stalker or, or a former boyfriend when she was just uh, 22 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. old. Okay, so the urban legend, did they use real skeletons? <sighs> yes, they did use real skeletons mm. because they were cheaper than making them, mm. uh, from what I remember. Right. So they did not dig them up themselves. I believe they bought them from medical... Yeah. Supply companies. Yes. From what I remember. That's right. But um, yeah, this thing has a lot of death tied to it. Craig T. Nelson, you better be careful, buddy. <laughs> Watch your back. Yeah. And whatever you do, Craig T. Nelson, don't get cast in a took because, I mean, that would be a <laughs> yeah. double whammy. You'd probably just explode but at that point. I think Coach is what saved him. Mm. Oh, broke the curse. You have a like a it, hit TV show, the- breaks the curse. Yeah, well, when you get cast in a comedy, uh, once you get away from the horror, uh, I think that's what saves you. Yeah. 
That's why the other ones went wrong. You're right about the skeletons on, on all, all your points that you make there. And we learned this most, uh, and particularly from a, a special make a special effects, one of the makeup artists who worked on the film, Craig Reardon. In, in 1982, there was a, a, Reardon was deposed as part of a lawsuit where Spielberg was sued by screenwriters saying that the uh, production company Amblin had stolen uh, some of their ideas from a script they had pitched to Amblin. The suit was ultimately settled out of court, but Craig Reardon said uh, under oath that quote, and this is regarding the skeletons, of course, that quote, I acquired a number of actual biological surgical skeletons. They're for hanging in classrooms and study. They are, these are actual skeletons from people. I think the bones are acquired from India. Uh, at any rate, we got 13 of these and we dressed them so they looked not like bleached, clean, bolted together skeletons, but instead disintegrating cadavers, end quote. So yeah, they were real and you're right. They were from a medical place and they got about a dozen or so of them. Joe Beth Williams, who brought this up, you know, in a number of different interviews of, of the year since, said that the use, when they found out they were, had used real skeletons, the, the, the crew and the cast, everybody was so freaked out that when they filmed a Poltergeist 2, they were still, they were still feeling uneasy about their experience that uh, co-star Will Sampson, who, you know, he was a member of the Muskegee uh, Nation, uh, the Creek Nation. He played the, uh, I don't know, he, I can't remember he, what exact role, but he, he plays the guy. So you see, remember in Poltergeist 2, there's that old guy who's like the human embodiment of the ghost that's following them around now. And then there was this Native American guy who comes to help fight the ghost or exercise their home. She said that he actually performed an exorcism on the set of the film for to try to you know put people at yeah. sort of mind at ease, and, and we know how that worked out for him, huh? Oh boy, yeah. Okay, so another guy who died. He died in 1987, I think, shortly after that film was made. And in actually, Poltergeist too, the guy who played the old guy, bad guy, he died too, but of stomach cancer. But apparently, he knew he had stomach cancer even when he was cast in, in the film, or before he was cast in the film. So he had been battling it for two years prior to that. As a side note, Samson is uh, the actor who played uh, Chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's, Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Okay, here is the bonus in the final urban legend in connection with Poltergeist, a little more lighthearted one. And the urban legend is that although Toby Hooper is credited as the official director of the film, Steven Spielberg actually directed it. I disagreed. You, well, you know what? This is one that we're going to have to say, who knows? You know what, though? This one's tough because I think maybe it was a little bit of both of them. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> a little Gators, Texas uh, Chainsaw 2, a little bit of. E.T. Jaws. E.T. Kind of I, 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 yeah. I think uh, a perfect example is when he's playing with the remote is yeah. very Steven Spielberg. Where he's fighting with the neighbor. Yeah. And I think the clown under the, mm. the bed is very Hooper. I can see what you mean now. Yeah. Steven Spielberg's more of that sort of. Uh, you know, human stories, maybe more like uh, yeah. sort of the mundane uh, and Hooper's a more bizarre out there, scary stuff. Yeah. And like them smoking dope in the bedroom is more Hooper. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the, one of the sort of elements attached to this urban legend was one of the reasons Spielberg really directed is because Toby Hooper was on drugs at the time. So we've got information on both sides that weigh on both sides of this. On the side that says that Spielberg really directed it, we have an interview from, uh, 2007. So in 2007, before she died, Zelda Rubenstein, or Rubenstein, she played the uh, exorcist, you know, mm-hmm. your house is clear. Mm-hmm. During an interview, she said that she only worked on the film for six days and Spielberg directed her at all of those days. So that's on the, on that side of it. Uh, in addition, also on that side is uh, a gentleman named John Leonetti, who uh, direct, he's a, now a film director in 2017, while he was promoting a film he just had come out called Wish Upon. During an interview, he was asked about this, and he said, Canned, quote, candidly, Steven Spielberg directed that movie. There's no question. However, Toby Hooper, I adore. I love that man so much, end quote. 
So that also on that side. And he, he went on to explain one of the other aspects of this urban legend is that the reason he did it, Spielberg directed it, was because there was a threat of a possible director strike. And so Toby Hooper had to be able to go on strike and they wanted to be able to have the film continue somehow. This rumor, though, is not new. I was surprised to learn no. it started back in 1982 when the film came out because a lot of the promotional materials and interviews and newspapers, et cetera, focused on Spielberg and didn't even mention that Toby Hooper had directed it. In fact, it got so bad that uh, the Directors Guild got involved to investigate, not because they didn't think Toby Hooper directed it, but because they thought the movie studio was unfair in their promoting of the film. And they awarded Toby Hooper an additional $15,000 just to make up for him not getting the credit he deserved in these different uh, you know, promotional materials. Spielberg apparently felt so bad about it that back again in 1982 when the film came out, he penned an open letter to Toby <laughs> Hooper and had it published in the uh, Hollywood uh, Reporter saying, you know, essentially, hey, these rumors are out there. You directed it. You're awesome. Thanks for working to me. You, you know, you're great. Toby Hooper went on to work with Spielberg and direct a number of different projects for him in the years to come. Although he never liked talking about it, shortly before his death a few years ago, he said, I directed it. Spielberg produced it. Uh, those rumors were terrible. And, you know. Yeah. I, I once again, I once again think um, the two of them worked on it together. Yep. And you can, I mean, you can just tell from the way the movie's made that it's, not a, it's not completely a Spielberg movie. Yeah. It doesn't have that flavor. It just doesn't. Yeah. So I think Hooper had a lot to do with it and whether he did the whole thing or not, I probably not. But if Spielberg's on set, are you really not going to let him help you? Yeah. He wrote I it mean, and what, produced it too. <laughs> what kind of moron yeah. would tell him, Hey, I got this. Yeah. Your ideas are stupid. Let me do this. Oh uh, yeah. And the very least you'd be intimidated to open your mouth, I think. Especially because this guy's giving Toby Hooper, who, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he had made a name for himself in horror, but he wasn't like Jaws big right. or closing counters big. Right. So I, I think it was uh both of them that made that movie. So Hey. And they made something special. That combination. Yeah, that's a good movie. So that's all the urban legends uh, from 1980s films I have for you today. I'm sure there's plenty of others that we can investigate at some episode in the future. Yeah. And we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. Later. Later.